Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Do you remember COVID? <laughs> when it hit, we went into what will forever be known as lockdown. You can't say that word anymore without it being referred to as within COVID. And actually, that time of regulation completely changed how we interacted with one another during that, that period of COVID. Do you remember 30 minutes maximum outside for exercise? Um, essential journeys only, working from home if not furloughed. We'd showed affection by touching elbows, masks all the time, and so much flipping Zoom. <laughs> it was a unique time. In fact, rarely does something happen like this that so radically changes how we interact with the world. There are only a few times in life where something like this will happen. And the Thessalonian believers had found themselves in one of these times. A time that would change how they interact with the world and everything around them. They had recently become followers of Jesus. Over the past few weeks, we've seen, um, as we've gone through the book of one um, Thessalonians, that it was a new church. And Paul was perhaps with them a couple of weeks, maybe just a couple of months, before, um, before he had to flee because he was under threat for his life. So not long, actually, after many of them had become followers of Jesus. This new faith had flipped their world upside down, and they are now trying to figure out what it means for them to be the church. So Paul closes this letter, the verses that we've had read to us today, by giving them a list of instructions on how being a follower of Jesus changes the way we interact with that which is around with us. In fact, in our 16 verses today, Paul gives 21 instructions. He gives them instructions on how they are to interact with one another, how they are to interact with the Word and with worship, and how God interacts with them. As a gospel-centered community, their interactions were radically changed. They were too radically changed, just like our interactions changed during lockdown. Paul was teaching them 
that now as a gospel-centered community, their interactions really mattered. And as a gospel-centered community, our interactions really matter. I've got three points with you for you today, and I want you to keep your Bibles open in front of you so you can follow along. I've had to group verses up together a little bit because it jumps around. But my first point is this. As a gospel-centered community, our interactions with one another matter. And this is verses 12 to 15 and verses 25 and 26. So a gospel-centered community, our interactions with one another matter. Verses 25, 12 to 15 and 25 to 26. I'm going to just read those to you now. They're on the screen. Now I ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. And then, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. So in verses 12 and 13, Paul notes how the church interacts with its leaders and how its leaders interact with them. But notice Paul does not give the leaders a name here, such as overseers or elders, as he does in other letters. He simply refers to them as those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Whether intentionally or not, Paul is showing that leaders are known by their work and not by their role or their title. They're to be hardworking among the church. They're to be caring like that of a parent, holding authority, yes, but being gentle and loving, nurturing the believers in their faith. And they're to admonish, challenge, and rebuke where necessary for the eternal good of the believers. The leaders are to be known by their work. And note that Paul is not asking the church to worship or flatter the leaders. Look, he simply says in verse 12, acknowledge them. And actually, this is quite easy to gloss over. And it seems insignificant, doesn't it? Acknowledge them. But isn't it something so encouraging when we receive acknowledgement from someone else? Say, for example, you've been doing um, a lot of housework around your house, um, and one of your... I don't know, housemates comes over to you and says, I've noticed you've been doing a lot of washing up, taking the bins out the last couple of weeks. I've seen it, and I really appreciate it. That's just really encouraging. That's just people seeing what you're doing and recognizing it. And this is what Paul is um, encouraging the Thessalonians to do for their leaders. Look again in verse 13. He says, hold them in the highest regard. Again, this isn't a call to flattery. It's rather a call to affection and thanks. Now, of course, leaders don't work and serve for our encouragement and thanks. They don't do it for thanks. Yet Paul commands us to show affection and thanks by holding them in the highest regard. On this, an English minister called John Stott says this. It's on the screen. In too many churches, the pastors and the people are at loggerheads which is painful to those involved 
inhibiting to the church's life and growth, and damaging to its public image. By contrast, happy is the church family in which pastors and people recognize that God calls different believers to different ministries, exercises, exercise their own ministries with thoroughness and humility, and give to others the respect and love which their God-appointed labor demands. So the church is to hold their leaders in high regard as they work hard among us, caring and admonishing us, because their interactions with one another mattered. As Paul moves into verse 14, he now turns his focus towards the believers or the church members' interactions with one another. He says it takes the whole body, the whole body, to be a gospel-centered community. That's everyone in this room. He says that the church is to be a place of mutual comfort, mutual encouragement, a place of patience, and a place of service. And this is for everyone in the church. This is every member ministry. We as a church body need to take on responsibility for caring for each other. It's not just those who are paid to do so or people who are appointed to do so. It's all of us. We all have that responsibility. So as you see, the, the idle, the disruptive, the disheartened and the weak were all part of the Thessalonian church. And Paul instructs the church on how to support one another through what they're going through. So, so too, there are going to be times in our walk where we are weak, where we are disheartened, and we're going to rely upon the rest of the church to support us. Equally so, there may be times when we are idle or that we are disruptive, and we need the church then too. But Paul's commands here to warn and courage and help must come from a place of love and a place of trust. That is really crucial. We are doing this out of love to help our brothers and sisters, to strengthen them in Jesus. Warning the idol might look like gently encouraging or reminding a brother and sister to serve the church by praying for it. My involve encouraging them to serve the church by volunteering on a Sunday, by hosting or by giving financially or by cooking, whatever it might be. There's no place for idleness within the church. So as a body, we are all responsible for gently and lovingly warning one another against idleness. Equally, Paul's command to encourage the disheartened, it must come up from a place of love. We must truly know one another. And from this knowledge and love and care for one another, we all know when one another is disheartened. And then it's our privilege as fellow brothers and sisters to get alongside them, sit with them, maybe provide for them practically, whilst reminding them of gospel truths. I could keep giving examples of this, but we must see Paul's point. This is a role for all of us for the good of all of us. It is the church body's responsibility as well as the leaders. Paul continues to address our interactions with one another with actually some pretty hard commands here. When we obey, when we obey the Bible's commands in these verses, 
Our interactions will be so radical and so countercultural that it will scream of the gospel. People will see how we interact with one another and they'll see that something is different. And this is not possible outside of the work of Jesus. Look at verse 14. You'll see what I'm talking about. Be patient with everyone. Make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong. But always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Not paying back wrong means leaving revenge to God. We never retaliate. In all situations, physical, emotional, relational, any wrong that someone does to us, we're to leave justice to the Lord. And what are we meant to do? We're to do good to that person. This is radical. This is opposite of the world. Our interactions really matter here because obedience to this command will show who we are and it will show whose we are. Jesus says this in John's Gospel, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, this being patient with everyone, this not paying back wrong for wrong, this doing good for each other, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The world will know that we are Jesus' followers if we show one another the kind of love that Paul is commanding in verses 14 and 15. Notice now in verse 25, Paul asks the believers to pray for him. This is a mark of Paul's humility. He knows, he knows he needs the prayers from the Thessalonian believers, just as they needed his prayers. Throughout this letter, he has referenced um, his prayers for them throughout the very, from the very beginning. If you look at um, chapter 1, verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, we always thank God for you and continually mention you in our prayers. And have you noticed that over the weeks as we've heard the book read, that often the way Paul writes, it sounds like he's actually praying as, he's, as it's being written. Maybe it's words that he's already prayed for them, or maybe he's praying as he's writing. We're to show love for one another by praying for them. It's a sweet thing to do. It's a wonderful thing to do. And actually, as we love one another by praying for them, love builds in, for, in us for praying for them. It's an amazing thing. Prayer is so important for us as the body, for one another. Verse 26 brings us to the holy kiss. Before we get to this, I want to say something quite important. It's important that we should always apply caution before writing off unusual or uncomfortable instruction in the Bible by saying it was just the culture of the day. Because you can use the excuse of different culture and context to bend the Bible to say exactly what you want. And sadly, we see this in many liberal churches today. There's a hard command from Jesus or Paul. Don't worry. It was just the culture. It doesn't apply to us today. We're in a different context. Culture and context must not be our go-to escape when we read something that challenges us. 
However, saying that, I believe the holy kiss may be a cultural thing. True, Paul commanded other churches to do the same in different letters, but greetings vary widely across cultures. There are some cultures where a kiss is appropriate greeting. Sadly, this was the case with my old Polish aunts who had bristly faces. But there are some cultures where a handshake is a better way of greeting. Some cultures where a hug or even a bow from a distance without actually any physical contact. The key thing of a greeting is the unity, the love, and the affection that it shows to that people, that person, and that it conveys to those who see it. Paul is telling the believers to greet one another in a way that shows their love in Jesus for that person. And this looked like a kiss for them. And it might look like a kiss to us too. It might look like a hug. It might look like a handshake. The key is the display of affection and love for that person and for the rest of the people who see that greeting. Now let us not overlook the word all. We are to greet all God's people with love. Sure, we're closer to some than others, and that is always going to be the case, but Paul's command to greet all our brothers and sisters in Jesus. And this is our reminder today, because we're a gospel-centered community, our interactions with one another really, really matter. My second point today is, as a gospel-centered community, our interactions with worship and the word matters. And this is verses 16 to 22 and verse 27. It's on the screen. So as a gospel-centered community, our interactions with worship and the word matter. So I'm just going to quickly read those verses again. Verse 16, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Then verse 27, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. Here Paul is talking about worship in the church, in the Thessalonica church. He says rejoice, pray, give thanks. Worship is an interaction with God. But let's get something out of the way. Rejoice always is not a command to be happy all the time. We're not in control of that. Paul is not enforcing a false state of happiness. But we can't get around the fact that he's saying rejoice always. In fact, he is speaking like many of the Psalms. Psalm 145 verse 1, for example, says, I will exalt you, my God and King. I'll praise your name forever." And ever. So, how do we do it? How do we rejoice always? How do we rejoice in a true and genuine way always? By faith. It's only by faith because we will be rejoicing in the things above, in the work of Jesus, and our hope in eternity, like that confession that we read earlier. 
Because these things, these things are unshakable and they're eternal. They remain even the bleakest and most difficult of days. So if our rejoicing and our giving thanks is in these things, both in times of loss and in times of plenty, we'll continue to be able to rejoice in them. Because they are eternal riches. It's important to remember here that the Thessalonian church is suffering. It's suffering some pretty severe persecution. And Paul has just left under fear for his life. And we must remember this as we read this command. Because it's really tempting to read it and say, well, it's all right. It's all right for you, Paul. It's all right for the Thessalonian church. You can rejoice and give thanks always, but you're not suffering what I am. You're not facing what I'm facing. But they have, and they were. And knowing that they were suffering, Paul says rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So whenever we meet together as a church to worship. In the face of how that our week has been, in the face of our feelings and our circumstances, we are to rejoice in Jesus. Our blessings in him and on our eternity secured with him. We are to be rejoicing in prayer and thanksgiving. Just as the song that we sang says, in our suffering, he will help us sing. Actually, we're going to give thanks for Jesus' work together later on when we take the Lord's Supper. We're going to rejoice in and give thanks for Jesus' atoning work as we eat the bread and as we drink the wine. The Lord's Supper is a great opportunity as believers to obey this command of Paul to give thanks together as a church. So following on from verse 18... Paul says in verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit within the church is almost eternally vast as it is varied. The Spirit illuminates and speaks to us through the Word of God as we hear it read and as we hear it preached. The Spirit moves in us, leading us to worship following what we've heard read. The Spirit gives us new life and regeneration. He gives us power for service. He gives supernatural gifts for the building of the body. He sanctifies us. He transforms us to better represent Christ. He restrains us from sin. He unifies. He seals. He gives us assurance. I could keep going. The Holy Spirit is so vast and varied in his role. Yet Paul says here to not quench the Spirit. How did the Thessalonians quench the Spirit? Why were they doing it? Look what it says in context. Verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. One of the gifts of the Spirit is prophecy. Prophecy is not necessarily telling the future. I've heard prophecy defined as the speaking forth in human words of something God has spontaneously brought to mind. It's speaking revelation from the Spirit. Paul writes about spiritual gifts quite extensively 
in 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 14, verse 1, he says this, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. And then a few verses later, he says, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. So if Paul, in this letter to 1 Corinthians, say, it says that the gift of prophecy should be eagerly desired, and that it's used for strengthening, encouraging, and comforting, why then, in the letter that we're studying to, what, to the Thessalonians, why does he need to command them to not treat prophecies with contempt? There was clearly a skepticism around prophecy in the church. Maybe they've had bad experiences of prophecy from false prophets or false teachers. Maybe they've heard of bad experiences. Can we be guilty of the same, the gate church? Instead of eagerly desiring the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy, are we treating it with contempt like the Thessalonians? Because if we are, we're quenching the Holy Spirit. The word used for quenched here is the same word used in the Gospels for lamps or fires being put out or extinguished. Paul is instructing those in Thessalonica to not stifle, extinguish, or put out the work of the Holy Spirit within the church. It's a really strong picture. Sadly, there are many false teachers and false prophets out there who claim to have the gift of the Spirit but don't. And instead, they just abuse people and manipulate people with false spirituality. But let us not write off the gift because it's been abused by a few. It's like never getting in a car because there are some people that drive without a license. We cannot get rid of this gift or neglect it because it's being abused by a few. Again, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says about spiritual gifts, he says, Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. The Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts to members of the body for the good of the body, for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Let us not treat this blessing with contempt. Let us not quench the sweet work of the Spirit among us. So should we then accept every prophetic utterance? No. 1 Thessalonians 5.20 Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. We must not immediately reject prophecies, nor immediately accept them. We are to test them. Think them through. Evaluate them. There is so much to be said on this. But here's three little things that we should do. We are to, firstly, we're to weigh prophecies against the Bible to ensure that they are true to the Bible and that all of its teaching. That is number one. If you don't, reject it. Number two, we're to examine the life of the one who has uttered or given a prophecy. Jesus says of false teachers that by their fruit you will recognize them. So to examine the life of that person, their track record. And thirdly, 
we're to share and discuss prophetic words with spiritual leaders or with those with gifting to discern between spirits. We must run it through those three as a guidance. There's loads more to, here to say. Please chat to me afterwards if you've got any questions. But for time's sake, these are three checks that we must perform when someone brings a word of prophecy. Finally, on this point on word and worship, Paul writes in verse 27, I charge you before the, before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. So Paul in, instructs this letter that we've had read over the last few weeks to be read within the Thessalonian church. He acknowledges his calling as an apostle, the weight and the authority of his words. And this is different to the prophecies of others. Because for them, he's told them that they should be tested. He's, he said, you know, test everything. But Paul does not say anything like that about his words. The inspired word of God, the 66 books of the Bible, with this letter being one of them, is infallible. It's perfect. We do not need to test it as it's God-breathed. However, all those who speak in church, whether it's through prophetic gifting or preaching, or teaching, we must test. We must hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. Because we're a gospel-centered community, our interactions in worship and with the word matter. My third very brief point today is this. As a gospel-centered community, God's interactions with us matter. And this is verses 23, 24, and 28. God's interactions with us matter. I'm just going to read those again. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's not overlook the fact that Paul refers to God as the God of peace. As we've looked at today, Paul has been commanding the Thessalonians in relation to their interactions with one another. And now he refers to God as the God of peace. And he asks the God of peace to sanctify them through and through. Living at peace with one another, loving one another and caring for them. It's really hard. It's really hard. In fact, it's impossible without the God of peace sanctifying us with the transformative power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. Paul knows and knew that the Thessalonian believers, like us, have no chance in obeying all these commands without the work of God. And that is why he prayed to God for their sanctification. And after praying for their sanctification, he prays for their preservation until they are with Christ. This is our remaining in and with Christ until we see him with our own eyes. This is the work of God in us. He keeps us. In this closing prayer, Paul is reminding them of the work God is doing in them. And only because of this can they obey these commands. 
And then he ends the letter in the way he begins. Just quickly turn a few pages to chapter 1, verse 1. Paul says, To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace with you. Then turn back, the very last verse. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Grace bookends and flows through this letter. Grace bookends and flows through the Christian life. It is by God's grace alone that we can be saved. It's by God's grace alone that we are transformed in his image. And it's by God's grace alone that we are preserved and kept in Jesus until we see him again. Look in these three verses, 24, 23, 24, and 28. There are no commands, not one command. There are 21 commands in the other 13 verses that we've looked at, but there are none here. Because as a gospel-centered community, there is lots of work to do, but the ultimate work is done. God sanctifies and keeps us He is faithful. Being a gospel-centered community, being a gospel-centered church, is possible only by the work of God, the work of God alone. Let's pray. Lord God, the God of peace, May you sanctify us through and through. May you keep our whole spirit, soul, and body. Keep us blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are faithful and that you will do it. Amen.